Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. I'm Rick Barrera, and I'm your host for the Heart of Leaders podcast. I've got Rick Tetzelli with me today. Rick has probably a lot more influence on your life than you realize. Rick Tetzelli has covered leadership, innovation, and technology for two decades. He was the executive director of Fast Company, deputy editor of Fortune, and editor of Entertainment Weekly. If you're in business, you've probably read Rick's articles or publications. Today, we're going to learn about the life and times of Rick Tetzelli. In our next episode, we're going to talk to Rick about people who think differently and the impact they have as leaders. Rick, welcome. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your early life and how you got into journalism. Well, I studied writing and English. I was a liberal arts major, and um, I spent some time in book publishing in New York. And then I went to work at Fortune magazine. Um, I worked three days every other week as a fact checker. It was a way to pay the bills while I was doing some other writing. And I found that I liked Fortune, so I stayed there. I got a full-time job, and I wrote um, news shorts for them, and I wrote some feature stories for them. Um, and I started covering um, I started covering the internet, and this was in the early '90s. And uh, the reason that I was able to cover the internet was because. I wasn't able to get into the um, economics group or the management group. Those were much hotter in the early 90s. So they sent me off to do an article about this thing called the Internet um, and the, inter- <laughs> the, the, the Internet and business. And, um, you know, it turned out to be a, a, a fairly interesting um, topic that has changed our lives and dominated um, the shape of culture and technology and innovation and business since that time. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been great to cover. I, I spent a lot of that time as an editor at Fortune, uh, running their technology coverage. So I, I didn't do that much writing, but I uh, assigned a lot of stories and was there for that, um, was overseeing their coverage during the first Internet boom. Uh, then I went and did a strange and wonderful sojourn uh, running Entertainment Weekly for six years. And then I left Time, Inc. and went to work at Fast Company, where I was for the last five years, um, where I was an editor, I was editing the print magazine. I also uh, took some time off during that time to write a book about uh, Steve Jobs called Becoming Steve Jobs. Um, I wrote it with a friend of mine named Brent Schlender, who had covered Steve for 25 years at uh, 
the Wall Street Journal and at Fortune, and and um, we felt we had a different kind of story to tell about Steve, and so we wrote this book, and that was a that was a great adventure. Now I'm freelancing. I'm writing for different places and doing a whole bunch of different stuff. But I have left the management side of uh, the publishing world. So your your book about Steve Jobs was really sort of the inside story. Well, it's written with somebody who knew Steve very well for a long time, and that gave Brent a different perspective on Steve from other journalists who knew him for a shorter period of time, including a different perspective from Walter Isaacson, who wrote the book that was so popular that came out shortly after his death. And so we had a very different take on him and a different take on how he ran Apple and what his leadership style was and how he evolved as a manager and a leader. Um, Sometimes Jobs seems stuck in time, affixed to a stereotype as half asshole, half genius. And um, in fact, he changed quite a bit over time, became somebody who was a good leader of small groups of men and, and a good leader who could inspire a company that grew and grew and grew under his leadership. He was a pretty great CEO um, his second time at Apple. Yeah, and so, you know, we've had this conversation. He really became much more of a heart-led leader in round two, and I think, according to you, that was driven largely by Ed Catmull at Pixar. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, You know, the heart-led leader side of this is, with Jobs, is an interesting issue. Ed Catmull, who um, is the... uh, is the head of Pixar, along with John Lasseter, um, when Jobs owned it, is sort of the archetypal heart-led leader, I think, and, and he's inspiring. He's deeply caring. He is tough. He has vision and communicates it clearly. There are things that Steve did not do in that, in the you know, like Catmull, even when he came back. He he could be um, he could be arrogant and he could be dismissive, but he he did get people to do the greatest work of their lives for him again and again, and he did delegate considerably. He he zeroed in on every decision that was that was important. He spent a lot of time thinking about a lot of details. But if you were Johnny Ive or John Rubenstein or Avi Tavanian or some of these guys, you had enormous leeway and enormous authority over things that were really important to Steve. And so he built this community, this small community around him of people who really believed him and who really, you know, who really loved him. One of the things we discovered in the course of reporting the book was that Tim Cook had offered his uh, his liver to Steve at one point when Steve was um, dying of cancer. It's possible to take a part of one's liver and have it give it to somebody else. 
and you know, we just that was an example of the kind of devotion and appreciation people had to Steve. Excellent. So you made it to the top of a very tough industry and led some very diverse publications with very different audiences. How, how, how do you how did you do that as a leader? There were different there were different levels of thinking about audiences. Um, when I was at Fortune and I was running the tech coverage there, there was an excitement about the internet and an excitement about what was going on. And there were also uh, a whole set of excesses that resulted from that excitement. And so at that time, thinking about the audience was really easy because the audience was me. Um, I was interested in new ideas. I was interested in innovation. I was also interested in how people were going to start these companies and, and do it without becoming jerks, without cheating. Um, and that it was, it was a fascinating human moment. People had, had riches dangled before their eyes um, around a technology that nobody really understood all that well. And there were so many stories out there. It was, it was just great. So at that point, it was really, you know, sort of assigning stories and editing stories that I would like to read. When I went to Entertainment Weekly, I came in thinking that Entertainment Weekly should be a more sophisticated magazine celebrating great art. And I came just at this moment in 2002 when the word entertainment was about to undergo a major change. You know, during those six years, entertainment came to mean celebrity. So we would do focus groups with readers in 2002 or 2003, and they would talk about CDs, and they would talk about TV shows and, and movies. When we did those focus groups in 2006 and 2007, they talked about Paris Hilton. They talked about The Hills. They talked about reality, um, reality TV. And there was this, this, this sea change. And so I had to... I had to learn how to edit a magazine for people who were interested in those kinds of things and still make it different from a celebrity, a pure celebrity magazine like people. And it was, that was really complicated. It was really complicated to sort of try and figure that out. And I did, you know, I, I think I did an okay job, but I, but it was, it was hard trying to figure that out. When I returned to business journalism at Fast Company, one of the nice things about coming back was that Fast Company Fast Company was born in that first internet era and it approached innovation as a good thing, an interesting thing. So the inclination going in was let's find people doing interesting things and let's write about them. Let's find people who are trying to be innovative and write about that. And so while we did do stuff that was negative, you know, we're fairly charitable for journalists in terms of embracing the idea of doing something new. 
And so that was, again, sort of back to uh, editing and assigning articles that I would be interested in and, you know, learning about that audience, this this audience of entrepreneurs who grew up in this, who are growing up in the second internet boom and how they're different from the first group and how they're the same. There are, you know, similarities, obviously. So thinking about that audience, you know, we were able to, to build a brand that is pretty recognizable at this point. You know, Fast Company occupies a very different place in the business journalism world from Forbes and Fortune and Business Week. It does. So you've had to lead creatives, a notoriously difficult thing to do. What was your secret there? I really always tried to understand what they wanted personally, um, why they were doing this job, what interested them. And then I tried to figure out how their personal goals worked with what I knew the magazine needed. So when I started at Entertainment Weekly, we had 110 people. And um, it was a really fun group of folks. But I had to one of the first things that I had to deal with was the fact that there were about five people who had wanted my job <laughs> and I had gotten the, I, I, I had gotten the job and the, the CEO, the, the guy who was running time Inc didn't help things much because he came over. We were a little outpost a couple blocks away from time Inc headquarters. And, and he came over and had a meeting with the whole magazine shortly after I took over there, and, and during that meeting, he said um, that there really had been nobody capable of doing this job at the magazine, and he also said that he thought of the Entertainment Weekly reader as a really smart 15-year-old. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and since, you know, since I had been uh, given the job by him, you know, that sort of rubbed off and but fairly quickly you know I got to know people there and you know and and I loved that I loved trying to figure out what people wanted and how they could do what they wanted within the parameters of what the magazine was supposed to be so as much as possible I wanted you know I wanted them to steer the magazine to drive it, drive its content. So I learned, I learned a lot. I learned that, you know, the writers and editors obsession with certain cult shows like Gilmore Girls, um, or, um, the movie Juno, um, uh -huh. or, um, Harry Potter early on, or, um, you're hitting all my favorites. These cult shows were what worked best for Entertainment Weekly, and said so that's part of what separated it from People and Us Weekly. So you know, I learned how to how to let them steer the magazine, and then it became it became harder during my last two years when. 
the culture seemed to be going so aggressively towards celebrity and, um, you know, my bosses at Time Inc. thought that Entertainment Weekly should go in that direction as well. And I didn't think it was the right ma- thing for the magazine. And, and so at that point it was, you know, that was harder, um, in terms of managing because I had my bosses saying one thing and I had, the people who worked for me wanting to do something else. So that was, that was complicated to navigate. And that's one of the things that's happened in the, in the publishing, in the publishing industry in the last decade is that as the advertising business and the circulation business have become much tougher than they were in the past, especially advertising, Publishers want their magazines to be very on message. And so there's there's a lot less spontaneity right. than there used to be at these magazines. And as a manager, uh one of the things that, that I found was that, you know, at Fortune and at and early at Entertainment Weekly, it was possible to nurture careers to bring people along. Once we at Time Inc. started living under the shadow of perpetual impending layoffs. It became harder to do that because you just didn't know, you know, who was going to be around. And that's a side of publishing that is unfortunate. And that's part of why I don't, I'm not in the, in that business. Yeah. So uh, how did you, how did you tell people there had to be people who brought you story ideas you thought were terrible and you had to tell them no, or who wrote things that you thought, you know, sort of weren't up to the standard or the focus that you wanted? How did, how did you handle that? I just told them, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) uh, you know, it was, you mean honesty and transparency? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, there, I should say that, you know, um, I had a boss who, um, at one point said he got really frustrated about some kind of story that wasn't getting delivered. I can't remember. And he, and he threw up his hands and he said, God damn it. Doesn't anybody know how to lie around here? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> so one of the things with creatives and with writers is that, you know, you're trying to get something out of them. You're trying to get a story out of them. But you also want it to be of a certain quality. And so you develop this, you know, this ability to sort of say, okay, here's what's good about the story. Here's what's not good about the story. And, and you know, trying to move everything in the direction of what's good. But what was most valuable was to, to, to go afterwards, after the story had been edited and published, um, and to go back over it and say, hey, you know, this is what went wrong here. This is what you have to you have to focus on going forward. You know, and did we do that all the time? No, but I tried. And, um, you know, I think as long as people know that you're on their side, you're trying to achieve a certain level of quality and you're transparent about what that level of quality is, they're okay with hearing hey, you didn't live up to it on this part. Most of the time when I had stories that were not, that were really weak, 
most often it was because I had hired somebody I shouldn't have hired or I had tried to make something work for somebody against my better judgment. So most of the bad, I didn't get very much bad work, but most of the bad work I got was because I'd put somebody in a situation that they shouldn't have been in. And so what did you do when you figured out you'd hired the wrong person? Oh, well, I found something new for them or I said goodbye to them. And I did that poorly sometimes and I did it well sometimes. Um, When I went to Entertainment Weekly, there was one guy who oversaw the whole thing. And then there was a guy who was in charge of the website. And then there was me and they brought me to be in charge of the magazine. The guy who was running the website and is still running the website is somebody I fired at Entertainment Weekly. But he was a writer at that point at Entertainment Weekly. And and it turned out he's a fantastic editor, a fantastic online editor. And so he found his way to, you know, what he was good at, what he is good at. And he and I, you know, even before I took the job at Fast Company, he and I had lunch and we sat down and I said, are we okay? And and he said, yeah, you know, because he had found what he should be doing. So you fired him from where? I fired him at Entertainment Weekly. He was a writer there. Okay, but he ended up being the web the web editor for Fast Company. Oh, for Fast Company. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. Fabulous. And, I, you know... We had regular layoffs at Entertainment Weekly when Time, Inc. was having a really hard time. I had one day where I actually had to fire 25 people in a day. It was about a quarter, a quarter of our staff. You know, and I fired people who were quite good and made choices between people of equal ability. <laughs> and that was horrible leaving aside the layoffs that were forced by economics, you know, most of the time when I had to lay somebody off, it was because they were just in the wrong job. It wasn't because they were inherently untalented or anything like that. Right. So it's that you're, you know, it's, 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 it's actually the kinder thing to do is to free them up so they can go be where they should be. Yeah. I mean, in theory, (laughs) There's nothing that feels kind about it. Um, you know, I mean, you can tell yourself that, and that's and that's that's true. You know, certainly, however, when I had to fire the, the people for economic reasons, some of those people didn't recover very well. Right. So did you have a leadership philosophy when you began, or did it develop over time? I had a leadership philosophy, which was that... Um, you know, I wanted the talent to drive the magazine. Over time, I had to learn how to balance that with what I was told were the needs of the company. Right. So what are the most significant changes you've seen in publishing over your career? You've really seen quite a bit and a lot of shifting. Yeah, well, the biggest the biggest thing that's happened is that you know the the market for print magazines has um you know has has just gone down enormously um you know it's like the difference between i don't know you know one world is mad men the other world is clerks mad men actually was shot in the time inc building 
and um, those offices, you know, there was still this air of in the 1950s, 1960s, this, this sense of superiority of, of the invulnerability of mainstream media, all of that when I started there. And, you know, now that's completely scrapped. And, you know, print magazines are certainly less influential than their online counterparts. People still love to be in print. <laughs> you know, CEOs and celebrities and all those folks, they love to see their their face in print. But, you know, online is what generates everything, is what drives the traffic, is what drives the finances. That's been the that's been the biggest change, without a doubt. So what are the sort of corollary business changes you've seen over that time? Well you know, there's been a shift in advertising revenue. The shift is really, even at, this is true, even at newspapers, you know, the shift is one of totally accelerated pace and more of an iterative philosophy than something that's set in stone. Um, You know, at the beginning in the 70s and 60s, you know, Magazine publishers really did think of that sort of set in stone idea, like it was, it was, there was something permanent about right. it. Time was timeless. It is timeless, right? You talked about the timelessness, and now you know, now it's iterative. You get your story up online as quickly as possible, and then you fix it if it's wrong, um, <laughs> and you, or you don't because you don't have enough time to do it, and you know that that shift causes all kinds of things. Um, you know, I remember when I got fired from Entertainment Weekly, I was sitting in my office with a friend of mine who worked there. And I, and I said to him, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Um, and I don't know what, what I'm going to do next. You know, maybe I'll have to go back to fact-checking. That's where I started out. And he, he promptly said, well, there are no fact-checkers anymore. And, you know, that, that went away. And when you when you operate in that environment, you know, it's not necessarily all bad. We actually have an incredibly vibrant journalistic world right now with, you know, stuff that's written really on the fly and and you can learn about news so much faster than you used to be able to. And then we also have, you know, there's also a place for long-form journalism, long, deep, analytical stories. And, you know, you look at the New York Times, they've figured out how to do both. And they're, and they're doing video. And they're doing social media. So it's not that things are, are worse. They're just, they're just different. different. Yeah. In some ways, they're better. So the businesses that you cover obviously have changed dramatically over that time. What, 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 what are you seeing there? Well, you see the same shift, but they were farther, they were ahead of it. I mean, especially covering the technology world. I mean, it's amazing to think about the way the Silicon Valley business model has affected all kinds of industries. You know, this iterative process and the idea of that because of increasing returns, there are winner-take-all markets. 
you know, the power of developing an audience even before you know how you're going to monetize it. Um, you know, so many different companies have to deal with that now. That's been a really big change. And so there's a businesses now, you can bemoan the fact that it's, you know, it's always on. You're always <laughs> at work. On the other hand, you know, these businesses are so much more agile than the companies, you know, than companies were 20 years ago. You know, today Amazon bought Whole Foods. Right. And, um, you know, that, that, that's something that was once unimaginable. But now, you know, no industry, the, the walls between industries are so thin. Yeah, the definition of industries is going away. Yeah. I mean, what, 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 what industry is Amazon in? I mean, it, it <laughs> covers all of them. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, what, what, what they've done as a business is truly phenomenal. And so the companies that can succeed now are much more agile than the companies of the post-war period. And that cuts both ways for, for employees. You know, it can, it, it can be exciting and it can be, you know, just enervating. It can wipe you out. So you cover technology. What do you find most amazing about its potential? Well, the, the, the really interesting thing that I now feel that I didn't really understand when I started covering it is, is the way technology is always going to be changing things. And what interests me so much is how technology is an iterative process, an evolutionary process, even though we celebrate its revolutionary <laughs> nature. So, you know, the chronology of technology is often thought of as moments, you know, Windows 95, um, iPod, iPhone, iPad, uh, you know, Amazon goes online. In fact, each of those moments were extraordinary, but they are also moments that have been worked up to by progress made on a lot of fronts by a lot of different people. And then there's, you know, somebody comes along and can consolidate all these ideas and turn it into a breakthrough. I find that, I find that fascinating. And I also feel like it's going to continue. So now I'm 55 and I start thinking about how this is going to continue, you know, well after I'm dead. So on the one hand, I despair about climate change and some other things for my children. On the other hand, I also do have confidence <laughs> that as a people, we are able to innovate our way around these problems. I don't know if that's true in the case of climate change, but I find that combination of breakthroughs and iterative stuff really interesting. So what's the latest whiz-bang tech that leaders aren't thinking about that they should have on their radar? Well, I think the big thing, I mean, I think people, people are thinking about artificial intelligence and robotics, um, but I don't think they're, I don't think people are focusing on it enough. I think 
especially people who are outside of tech industries, who are in industries, let's say, advertising or um, manufacturing, or manufacturing, or you know, service or, businesses, uh, oil services, or something like that. You know, they are all going to be affected, and it's going to start happening in a big way in the next decade. And, you know, one of the, there's so many interesting things about this. I mean, the most obvious thing is job replacement. Like, does this mean we're going to throw, you know, millions of people out of a job and therefore you need a universal basic income, as some people in Silicon Valley have suggested? I doubt it. I bet that, you know, new jobs will be created for people but for business for business folks there are so many things to think about and one of the basic ones is the nature of your business organization business organizations are already far more porous than they were 20 years ago the um you know your your workforce is no longer the 10,000 people who work for you full-time. It's now the 20,000 people who work for you full-time, work from home, work part-time, who are contractors, who are service employees, who are, you know, the, the people you've outsourced stuff to. If you go to a General Motors factory now, there are full-time General Motors people, you know, engineers there, running the shifts and, and you know, making quality control people and all sorts of people running the, the thing and, and also people on the line, you know, traditional UAW kind of jobs. But, you know, one of the things that happens is that parts are regularly moved to each station. So each person who's running a, a spot on the line needs certain parts to do his or her job. That is now done by an outsourced organization, as it's done by a contract organization. And, you know, they are totally woven into the GM fabric. That's what's happening now. But if you're thinking about your organization in five years from now, you know, you're going to have to think about the robots in your organization also. Right, right. <laughs> and how those, you know, how those robots who are at key places, key points in your production process, how are they going to interact with, you know, your full-time people or your part-time people? These are challenges that, you know, are going to be upon us very quickly, and I don't think people are paying enough attention to it. So who are your mentors, and what did you learn from them? Oh, I had a lot of mentors. I had several mentors. Um, when I was in book publishing, I, had, I worked for this great guy, Ray Roberts, who um, was just a wonderful editor and who really showed me how you could be human and caring and perform at a really high level at the same time. You know, I always wanted to be, you know, like Ray in that way. I mean, he he was very, very good at what he did. And he really cared about people and he was completely human. There was no, uh, there was no front, which I really admired. When I was at Fortune, I worked for a guy named John Huey. 
Huey was an editor who came. He he started running the magazine around 1995, and he he showed me the storytelling of business. I mean, I just and which I loved. You know, I loved that that you could really tell great stories about this world, and that it wasn't you know formulaic. So he was a he was a a big mentor for me as well. Cool. So what were the other factors that shaped your point of view? I don't know. I mean, that thing with Ray, I always felt, it always felt like, you know, business is really interesting and I wanted to be in commerce. I wanted to be doing stuff with other people and making things, but you had to do it in a way where you didn't become a cipher, where you engaged in a real human way was always important to me. And so seeing how people did that or didn't do that was always really important for me in terms of, you know, when I wound up managing people and leading people, that was always a big, big deal for me. So how did you come to be interested in people who think differently? That seems to be kind of your core obsession. You know, I, I think part of this is, is through having covered, I think there are two things. You know, one is like in the entertainment world, one of the things about the entertainment world that is ultimately somewhat deflating as a journalist is that, you know, for the most part, you get to write about these people when they have a product to sell. And for the most part, when you're engaging with them, they're putting on a persona. And it's really unfortunate because a lot of what they're doing is very interesting and complicated and, you know, acting is hard or making music is hard. And so these are people who, who were thinking differently. They were thinking of doing things in a different way. And yet most of them chose to speak about it in a fairly conventional way when they spoke to the press. So they're, so, they're sort of off in their, off in their, cave inventing and thinking differently and doing things. And then when they bring it to market is when they want to talk to the press is what you're saying. Right. 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 And then, and then you have, and then I spend a lot of time covering startups and startups, you know, and, and, and I came to all of this as a storyteller first. I mean, that's what, you know, it's always interested me from high school. And so then there are startups, right. And the startups, part of the startup deal is that you create your narrative and your narrative, you know, you, you stay on message for the interviews and you, and you, you want people to believe in the narrative. Many of these narratives are true. Many of them are false. Many of them are constructs designed to leech money from venture capitalists. And um, (laughs) so when you have a chance to see really interesting people thinking in truly original ways, when you can get a subject who is where you can you can either figure out what what they're doing that's so different or they will talk to you about it in a real way, you know then you're actually learning something about how things get done, about how breakthroughs happen. And that's a really creative process. And so that's why this has interested me so much is because you need people who think different 
to have breakthroughs. In, in almost every industry, you know, there are small gains in efficiency or in, you know, product gains or there are small gains that happen all the time. At some point, if you're lucky, you know, you leap ahead to something else and it takes somebody who's thinking different to make that happen. And people who think differently are the people who um, inspire and create breakthroughs. Right, and drive progress. And drive progress. Now, you know, that's complicated in the sense that, you know, the whole idea of thinking differently is, you know, like everybody wants to claim that they think differently. So, you know, to find it when it's when it really is there, when people are really doing something different, that's that's really interesting journalistically. I love thinking about that and I love thinking about, you know, how how can people bring that you know to their own work lives. Yeah. And I find that stuff fascinating. Yeah. It's it's always interesting to me how trendy things become. So it's it's like teenagers who all say, you know, well, I have to repel and I have to be different from my parents and all that. So they, you know, start some trend or other, but then every, all the teenagers adopt it. Right. right? And, and business is kind of the same. So somebody does something that's truly different, but then everybody adopts it. It's no longer different. But everybody thinks they're thinking differently. Right. And and so thinking differently is <laughs> thinking differently is one of those is one of those things. And there's an inherent you know, novelty for novelty's sake is 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 meaningless. Right. But you often see people pointing to that as evidence of their ability to think different. And so really thinking differently, really doing things in a different way, and there's a theoretical thinking different, which is there are people who are theorists who you know, can can just think up different things. And that's a, I would argue that there too, it's an iterative process that at a certain point comes to be a breakthrough. You know, those people are right. building on ideas, on past ideas. What interests me most is people who, you know, think in a different way and then are actually able to create something that as a result of that thinking that has an impact on people. That's why Steve Jobs is so fascinating, you know, because he had a, he had a different way of, of, he was at a completely different way of thinking about information technology and computers from his peers. But in a way that's useful to people, to, you know, to but in a way that was very useful to people. Right. Right. Exactly. So that really, I think is, is, it's really fascinating. How do people make that happen? How, you know, like Elon Musk is another in very interesting example, you know, of, uh, I was talking to somebody at Harvard Business School Press the other day about what's the difference between Elon Musk and Nikolai Tesla. And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, Musk, um, Musk, has these ideas that are way out there, just as Tesla did. But, but Musk can turn them into something. Yeah. In the most, I mean, you know, 
uh, you know, to create a spaceship company. I mean, give me a break. And, um, you know, that's really, that's really fascinating. Now, Tesla is fascinating in, in his own right. But this ability to think in a brand new way and actively bring a product or bring something tangible to a lot of people is something I admire. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's amazing to me when you look at Musk's vision for, you know, the, the, you know, the solar roofing tile, the Tesla automobile, the battery wall, you know, take, taking the whole house and or neighborhood off the grid. I mean, that, that whole thing integrated is, you know, it's all sort of iterative, but, but that vision to put all that together and, and make it come to reality is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's spectacular. It really is. So, closing thoughts, hanging chads? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think, you know, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, you know, the thing that's most interesting about that business to me is, is, is people doing these authentically human things and bringing those desires and those feelings to work and translating them into something that gets out there to people. It's what, I mean, this, this ability to bring things to a mass audience is really amazing. We have, it is, it is easier to get a product to a mass audience now than it has ever been. And, and that's really interesting. Like, that's wild that you can do that, you know, and, and, and in you some ways... You can change the world. You can change the world. And in some ways, you know, for somebody like me, I'm 55, you know, I, I've, I've been working for, for 20 years in an industry that's been going, you know, going downhill for 15 of those years. It's easy to, to sort of think about the shrinking, you know, that we have less, Right. And yes, a magazine probably, you know, magazines reach fewer people and are less influential than they were. There's no question. But no magazine was ever as influential as Facebook. Right. And I would argue that I'm not sure that there was ever a TV network that was as influential as Facebook. So all that that diminishment in the magazine and traditional journalism world is, is a, is an innovation transfer. Right. To a different and more powerful form of communication. Well, awesome. Rick, we're going to ask you to come back if you will, and, and talk about different thinkers. Can we get you to do that? That sounds great. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for being here today. I've enjoyed it. Would you like to meet Rick Tetzelli in person? and hang out? You can. Just make the decision to join us for the next Heart of Leaders training program in Denver. Call us right now at 858-248-3162 or go to heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com where we blog, post articles, and book reviews and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.